the prophetic books of the Bible so that we can understand the times and what is surely going to come to pass. This is our goal as we study the book of Revelation. Before we resume this journey together, I want to review the material we have covered thus far. I I think this will be helpful for you to catch up uh, if you have been here with me before. And if you have not, it will introduce to you, at least in an overview type of way, what we've covered. One thing that we did last time that I wanted to do again is speak to you about four things that we need to expect of ourselves as we venture through this book together. These are what I call four commitments. I'm asking you to make these commitments tonight as you're listening, and these are commitments I want to make as well. You can write these things down. I hope that they will help inspire you uh, to be more diligent in your study and application of the Word of God. First of all, I would urge you to commit to approach this book with prayer. Approach this book with prayer. Pray and ask God every week to speak to you through this book because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's a great blessing we are promised when we read, when we apply this book. So so pray that God will speak to you. Pray that I will present the messages clearly so that you can understand. Also, I would ask for you to commit to faithfully attend each study session. Prioritize being here. I understand that there are some who can't come because we're still in a pandemic and we're struggling with that to some degree. And uh, there are some who are watching tonight. I know for a fact they've told me they were going to. And I'm thankful for that. But if there is any way that we can physically meet together, I think it's always healthier and better when the body comes together and we study together. There's something about meeting together as God's people that cannot be replicated through a CD, a DVD, or even through watching online. So being here together is the best option. So I'm asking you to make a commitment to do that if you possibly can. The third commitment is to read the assigned text before you arrive. Just read the next chapter. I would encourage you to read it a couple of times at least through the course of the week. That way you'll have an idea of where the text is going And you can get it in your mind, and it will be more familiar to you when we come together to study. And then apply what you've learned. As you're learning more truth from God's Word, ask yourself the question, how can I put this into practice? How can I live this out of my life? We're not just studying to gain more intellect, more knowledge. We're studying to take that knowledge and live it out in daily life. That's so important to remember. So these are the four things I ask you to commit to as we go through this study together. The book of Revelation is the only prophetic book in the New Testament. Of its 404 verses, there are at least 278 and possibly as many as 550 allusions to the Old Testament, with Daniel being referred to the most, followed by Isaiah Ezekiel, and the book of Psalms. Revelation was written by the Apostle John, who also wrote the Gospel of John, 
as well as 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. John wrote Revelation while in exile on the small Mediterranean island called Patmos, off the coast of Asia Minor. The book is believed to have been written around A.D. 95, during the reign of Domitian. Just as Genesis reveals how God brought the heavens and earth into existence, Revelation informs us how the present heavens and earth are going to pass away and be replaced by the new heavens and the new earth. It is important to remember, listen carefully, it is important to remember that genuine believers can disagree over how to interpret the book of Revelation. There are four general approaches Christians use to interpret the book. Let me mention these four to you. You may want to write these down. The preterist approach, that is P-R-E-T-E-R-I-S-T. The preterist approach believes the book is about historical events that occurred in the Roman Empire during the first century. This view ignores that the book was written as a book of prophecy that focuses on the end times. The historistic approach, this view sees the book as a a panorama of church history from the time of the apostles until today. As with the preterist approach, this interpretive category discounts the prophetic nature of the book. It also leads to allegorizing the text to find historical events resulting in all sorts of speculation. The idealist approach sees revelation as symbolic of the battle between good and evil that is waged in every generation. This view does not believe the book is either historic or prophetic. As with the previous two approaches, this view dismisses the basic prophetic purpose of the book. Also, it reduces the message of Revelation to a presentation of mere symbols that are intended to teach spiritual truth. The futurist approach views chapters 4 through 22 as prophecy, describing the events that will lead to the culmination of human history, the second coming of Christ, the establishment of his kingdom, and ultimately the eternal state. This approach employs a straightforward view of the text and sees the book as prophecy the way it was intended. For this reason, we're going to use the futurist approach as we study the book of Revelation. I believe this is the accurate approach to take. The book of Revelation is the uncovering of Jesus Christ. Look in your Bibles, Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where we read the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants, the things which must soon take place. And he sent and communicated it by his angel to his bondservant John, 
who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, everything that he saw. The Greek word is apocalypsis, meaning an unveiling or uncovering. When Jesus came to earth, he showed us the glory of God. But even then, his glory was not fully revealed. The book of Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus Christ in ways no other Bible book does. This is the purpose of this book. This revelation will uncover things that must soon take place. God has also given a promise to bless those who read, hear, and heed the book. So I can promise you a blessing when you come, every time you come, to study with me the book of Revelation. If you listen and you heed what you're hearing, you will be blessed. There's a guarantee in Scripture that this will surely take place. Now look in Revelation chapter 1 verse 3. Here we find these words. Blessed is the one who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy And keep the things which are written in it, for the time is near. This means that Christ can come back at any time. We're not waiting for any prophecy to be fulfilled before Jesus can return. This is the imminent return of Christ. We're looking for his soon return. And wouldn't it be great if he came right in the middle of this study? I'm telling you, that would be a fantastic thing. The book contains many symbols. Someone has said a picture is worth a thousand words. All throughout this book, God uses symbols to convey his literal truth. Many of these symbols are interpreted in the book itself. Others are discerned by their use in other prophetic books. Some symbols remain a mystery. Caution must be taken to resist wild speculations about the meaning and application of symbols where the Bible is silent. The book of Revelation was a great encouragement to the Christians who had been stripped from their many earthly blessings and possessions who were suffering intense persecution. The reason for its inspiring hope is because it uncovers the eternal blessing that God has promised to all who are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this would include us in modern day America, those of us who are believers. We read in Revelation chapter 1 verses 4 through 6. If you'd look there now, you, you find these words, John to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you. And peace from him who is, and who was, and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. Now, I want to stop there for just a moment. As I preached through this section, I talked about the seven spirits of God. But let me briefly mention that uh, this here and address it so you won't be confused. This does not mean that there are seven spirits It's speaking about the fullness of the Holy Spirit and his ministry. The blessings that uh, are conveyed through through the Spirit of God. And you'll see uh, 
that the number seven is significant. I will speak to that in just a moment. But let's continue to read here. And we see, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he made us into a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. The letter is addressed to seven churches in Asia. Asia does not refer to the Orient. These churches were in a Roman province of Asia Minor, which is the western side of modern-day Turkey. There were more than seven churches in this area, but the number seven is often used in the Bible to convey fullness or completion. The number seven is used more than 700 times in the Bible. And in the book of Revelation, it is used over 50 times. Of course, sometimes the number seven simply means seven. But sometimes it means fullness or completion. This is especially true in the book of Revelation. And to discern when it is to be used just as a number, or if it has a fuller, richer meaning, the context must be studied to make that determination. Verses 4 and 5 contain, if you'll notice in your text, a Trinitarian blessing because all three persons of the Godhead are mentioned. Notice the usual Trinitarian formula of listing God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is interrupted here. I believe God the Son is listed last because he is the focus of the book. After all, this is the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. The theme of the book is found in verses 7 and 8. So look there, if you would, in chapter 1, verses 7 and 8, and you'll see these words. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is a prophecy based on Isaiah chapter 7, verse 13, and Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10, that contrasts the first and second coming of Christ. God gave John a vision of the glorified Christ to share with these struggling churches in Asia Minor. Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 and 11. If you look in your text, notice with me, we read, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like the sound of a trumpet, saying, write in a book what you see. And send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, and to Smyrna, and to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, 
and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. The book of Revelation uses a lot of similes to help describe the indescribable. For example, the word like is used 56 times in the book. Here, John heard a voice behind him that sounded like a trumpet. Revelation chapter 1 verse 11 is the first of 12 occasions where John is commanded to write what he sees. Each of these cities represented a postal district in Asia Minor. These seven churches were critical to the message, reaching all the churches in the region and even to us today. God reminded them of his presence and power at work protecting and purifying them. The book of Revelation, you'll find here in chapter 1, verses 12 through 16, symbolically describes the glorified Christ. I want to read this section of Scripture. I think it is so important. Let me read it for you. We're in chapter 1 now, verses 12 through 16. Now, this is John who turns. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned... I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the middle of the lampstands I saw one like a son of man, clothed in a robe reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of many waters in his right hand he held seven stars and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and his face was like the sun shining in its strength the figure standing in the middle of the seven churches with the, se- uh, with the seven pastors in his hand, struck John with holy terror. He fell down before him like a dead man, we read here in this text. Christ told John, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. We read that in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 and 18. Now look closely at Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Because this serves as an outline for the book. So you can outline the entire book by using verse 19. And here's what it says. Therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are... And the things which will take place after these things. The things which you have seen would be chapter 1 verses 10 through 16. The things which are would include chapters 2 and 3. The things that take place after these things would be chapters 4 
through 22. The church at Ephesus was the first of seven churches Jesus addressed through the apostle John in the book of the Revelation. Five of the seven churches had to be confronted because they had allowed sin to infiltrate their congregations. The only two churches not to be rebuked by the Lord were Smyrna and Philadelphia. You do not need to study these churches for long until you realize that the individual characteristics of each of these churches are still present with us today. Every Christian and every church can be placed into the category of one of these seven churches. Certainly, one of the most common representatives of these churches in our day is the church at Ephesus. You'll find this in Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the church that lost her first love. Smyrna, the second of the seven churches Christ addresses in the book of Revelation, you'll find in Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 through 11. They were accustomed to suffering the bitter pain of persecution. Our Lord had no rebuke for Smyrna. A careful study of this church reveals a congregation that had been refined by the flames of trial. Then Pergamum is the third letter Christ sent to the churches. You'll find this in Revelation 2 verses 12 through 17. He had compliments for this church, but he also had some serious criticism. This is the church that compromised. This was a worldly church. The fourth church to receive a letter is Thyatira, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 through 29. This was the church sin had corrupted. Under the leadership of one woman, the majority in this church had been led astray. They were more concerned with being socially acceptable than spiritually pure. Their sin had not gone unnoticed by Christ. Remember, it is Christ who is the one who's walking in the midst of these churches. These churches are in his right hand. These pastors are, are mentioned as being in his right hand, those who are leading these churches. So he knows what's happening in these churches. And by the way, he knows what's happening in our church as well. Well, he sent them a letter warning of the severe judgment that would befall all who had been corrupted by sin unless they repent. Sardis, the fifth church, looked good on the outside. But they were dead on the inside. We find them mentioned in Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. They appeared to be alive but they were dead. This was a church filled with religious activity. They seemed to be in good shape. Unfortunately, they had a serious problem. Christ said they were dead. We now turn our focus to the sixth church, Philadelphia, the church that was faithful. You can read about this blessed church in chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. This little church 
did not have the advantages of some of the larger congregations, but it had what was most important, faithfulness. Now, this is the church we need to strive to be like. We need to be faithful. The seventh and final stop along this postal route is Laodicea, Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. Here we find a church that was lukewarm. This is the most difficult letter to read because Christ had nothing good to say about this church. This church was in such serious condition, it is hard to tell if there were any genuine believers left in the congregation. Chapter 4 marks a transition in the book of Revelation. John had recorded the first vision he received about the resurrected Christ in uh, chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. He had written down the seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor in chapters 2 and 3. Now he begins the third major section in this book, the things that take place after these things, which will be recorded in chapters 4 through 22. Up until this point, the focus has been on the church. No mention of the church is found again until you get to chapter 19, verse 7. This absence of the church on earth during this period supports the view of the pre-tribulational rapture of the church. And by pre-tribulational rapture, I simply mean that the snatching away of the body of Christ in what we refer to as the rapture that I believe occurs before the tribulation actually begins. And, and we'll begin to see the tribulation unfold as we continue to go through the book of Revelation. No mention of the church is found again, as I said, until chapter 19, verse 7. Now, in chapters 4 and 5, the view turns from the church to heaven with the centerpiece being the throne of God. These two chapters set the stage for the consummation of human history with the unfolding of the tribulation, the millennial kingdom being established, and then going into the eternal state. Chapter 6 is the period known as Daniel's 70th week or the seven-year tribulation period. In Daniel chapter 9, God sent Gabriel to convey a vision to Daniel. The message revealed a prophecy of the Messiah and the events surrounding his appearance. The 70 weeks are understood by most Bible scholars as 70 weeks of years or 490 years. Listen carefully. 69 weeks of this prophecy have already been fulfilled. The next event on God's prophetic calendar is the final week of Daniel's prophecy. This week represents the seven years of tribulation 
that will be marked by God's judgment. The unleashing of his judgment occurs with the unrolling of a scroll that is bound by seven seals. This scroll is the title deed to the earth. Only Christ, only Christ, the Lamb, is worthy to break the seals revealing each of the judgments. With the opening of each seal, more of the content is revealed. Although heaven is the location where the seals are broken and the seal is unrolled, the judgment that is unleashed occurs on the earth. The focus will remain on the earth until chapter 19, where we see Christ's return and his kingdom established in chapter 20. In Revelation chapter 6, the Lamb of God begins to open the scroll with seven seals. The breaking of the first six seals unleashes the wrath of the Lamb against the world in total rebellion against God. The first seal releases a white horse whose rider is the Antichrist. He promises peace, but the peace is short-lived. The second seal brings forth a red horse whose rider causes world war. A black horse gallops forth when the third seal is opened. This rider spreads famine and starvation throughout the earth. Death is riding the fourth horse that appears when the fourth seal is broken. The color of this horse is pale, representing death because of the sword, famine, pestilence, and wild beasts. The fourth seal judgment will result in the deaths of a fourth of the earth's population. These fourth seals that are broken, bringing forth these four horses, are sometimes referred to as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Perhaps you've heard that, that type of description. With the breaking of the fifth seal, the scene shifts from heaven to, uh, uh, the, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. The focus falls on martyrs beneath the altar. These are the souls of those killed for their faith. They cry out for God to bring justice to this wicked world. When the sixth seal is broken, a combination of earthquakes and volcanoes will fill the skies with ash, causing the sun and moon to be concealed. Asteroids and meteorites will rain down upon the earth. The mountains will be moved out of their places. Initially, earth dwellers refused to connect the worldwide disasters and chaos with the wrath of the Lamb. However, the breaking of the sixth seal 
will cause overwhelming fear to strike the hearts of people all around the world. Finally, realizing God is pouring out his righteous judgment, people cry out for the rocks to fall on them and to hide them from the almighty God. And notice they're not asking for God's forgiveness. They're not repenting of their sins. They're trying to hide from God. Chapter 6 closes with a stirring question concerning the great day of wrath that has come. The question is, who is able to stand? Who is able to stand? Considering the worldwide catastrophe brought about by God's wrath, who will be able to stand? Will anyone be saved during this time? Can anyone survive? The end of chapter 6 is where we paused our study. We will resume next Sunday night at the beginning of chapter 7. The message will be entitled, Surviving the Tribulation. So you want to be here next Sunday night. And I would encourage you to invite a friend. Very important. Now, chapter 7 serves as an interlude or parenthetical section so that the question posed at the end of chapter 6 can be answered. This passage reveals that people will be saved during this terrible time known as the tribulation period. God seals 144,000 Jewish evangelists to spread the gospel of Christ throughout the earth. In heaven, the multitudes gather to worship before the throne. We see this in detail next time. Now, looking beyond next week, let me give you just a a very brief overview. As we get to chapter 8, verse 7, through chapter 11, verse 19, we will see the blowing of the seven trumpet judgments. Then we'll be in chapter 10, verse 1, through chapter 11, verse 14, where there is another interlude that occurs between the sixth and the seventh trumpets. And then in chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse 8, there are seven key characters that are introduced that uh, have a a significant role in this revelation drama. We'll see who they are. In chapter 14, verse 1 through verse 20, there is yet another interlude for three angel messengers. And then we turn to chapter 15, verse 1 through chapter 16, verse 21. And then we find the pouring out of the seven bold judgments. B-O-W-L, bold judgments. When we get to chapter 17, verse 1 through chapter 18, verse 24, we see the judgment of Babylon. We'll explain what Babylon is in, in, in detail when we get to that point. 
And then we come to chapter 19, verses 1 through 21. Here we study the marriage supper of the Lamb and the return of Christ. And when we arrive in chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, we will study the millennial kingdom. One of my favorite chapters in all the Bible. And I'm looking forward to the millennium. Then we'll finally arrive in chapter 21, verse 1 through chapter 22, verse 5. And here we'll talk about the eternal state. That is when we, we go into the new heavens and the new earth. That's eternity. Where Christ's reign has begun in the millennial kingdom. That's the introduction of his reign. And of course, we'll continue on forever and forever. There's a final statement that occurs in chapter 22, verses 6 through 21, and that will complete then the book of the Revelation. The book of Revelation is a tremendous book to study. This is especially true considering the wickedness that abounds in our present day. The world is growing darker and darker with each, with each moment that we live, and we see it uh, all around us. It, it's hard to escape. We all know that things cannot continue the way they are going indefinitely. We all sense that there's a, a, there's a pressure that's building. And, and we realize that, that, that things cannot uh, continue without something breaking, something changing. If God does not intervene soon, we are going to destroy ourselves The wickedness has become so great. Saints of God, my message to you tonight is this. Do not be discouraged. Do not be discouraged. God is in control. And when you study the book of Revelation, you see that that is happening. When things look chaotic and as if the wickedness is prevailing and that the evil one is going to win, I assure you he is not. God is in control. He is coming soon for his church. Once he raptures his church, he is going to judge the world. He is going to pour out his wrath on this planet. He will bring an end to Satan's evil reign. Now here's the question. Are you ready to meet Christ? Do you know him? Are you sure? If Jesus Christ were to come tonight, would you go with him? Or would you go into the tribulation period? You say, well, pastor, honestly, I just don't know. How can I know for sure? Well, you can know for sure. We're told in the Bible, we read in 1 John, these things I have written unto you that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to question. You can be sure about it. How do you know? The Bible says those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you will call upon him and say, God, I'm a sinner, I deserve death and hell, but I believe Jesus Christ is a Savior who lived without sin, who died in my place at the cross, shedding his blood for me and was raised in victory from the dead. 
And by faith, I receive your free gift of salvation. I trust you to be my Lord and Savior. I'm telling you, if you'll call upon him, he'll save you. He'll forgive you of all your sins, past, present, and future. And you will be declared righteous by God. And he will begin to work in you, changing you, transforming you. You'll be a new person. You'll be a part of the family of God. If you'd like to receive the Lord tonight, would you bow your heads and pray this prayer from your heart to God's heart? Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. I deserve death and hell. But I know Jesus is a Savior who lived without sin, who died on the cross for me, shedding his blood that I might be saved and was raised in victory that I might have eternal life. I turn from my sin and self and I receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. By faith, I trust you to save me, Lord. Now give me the strength to live for you for the rest of my life. Thank you for saving me, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you pray that prayer, I'm going to invite you to come and and say, Pastor, I prayed that prayer just a moment ago. I'd like to know that. I'd like to rejoice with you and give you an encouraging word as to how you can begin to walk as a new believer, as a babe in Christ. So please take time to share that with me. You can join this church tonight by coming and saying, I want to become a member here at First Baptist. That's all you have to say, and I'll know what you mean. Some of you are Christians, but you've never been baptized. Baptism is the way that you publicly declare your faith before the church, before the world. It's your public profession. So would you come and say, I want to be baptized. We'll baptize you. Baptism doesn't save you, but it's an act of obedience. It could be you want to come to the altar and pray, however the Lord is leading. Would you stand as we sing this invitation hymn?